We have Paul House with us today, and um, hopefully you were all in chapel today uh, and heard him there on the first of two uh, parts that he's uh, of his, the Adams lectures, uh, where he talked about Isaiah, and he'll continue with Isaiah tomorrow. Um, today was sort of the gospel in Isaiah, and if I could tell from your title, is tomorrow kind of our response to that gospel? Okay, okay. Uh, it was very, very good, and I encourage you to come back. Even if you weren't there today, come back for tomorrow and, and hear that the conclusion to it. Um, uh, during this time, we're going to uh, just have a sort of a casual conversation here, although we have another series in the chapel called Casual Conversation, so we can't borrow that, can't steal it. So we're going to call this an informal um, Conversation. I didn't have a good play on words there. It started with an I, an informal uh, interchange. There we go. There we go. Something like that. It's getting worse here. All right. Um, but let me just introduce uh, Dr. House to you quickly. He is a professor of Old Testament at Beeson Divinity School and has been at various schools over time and served as my PhD uh, supervisor when I was at Southern Seminary. And... Um, I learned a lot from him. Uh, I told him, and I guess I'm speaking to those who are either in doctoral programs or you're thinking about it to choose wisely because, and I, and I think I've told you this, but when I first started teaching, when I, was, I went to Indonesia, I was on the mission field, and when students would come to me with questions or things would come up in the classroom, I found myself uh, saying uh, sort of a WWPS what would Paul say? You know, or, you know, what would Dr. House say? And I, like, how would Dr. House handle this kind of a question? And I found myself talking to students the way that you would talk to me and the way that I saw you deal with others. And, um, and as you were lecturing today, I started to see myself up there a little bit. And I thought, I wonder if my students are watching. And now if the, if the secret is out. That I'm imitating you? No, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> So, um, uh, the, I guess, you know, what we were talking about at lunch, though, with Bonhoeffer and um, seminary education and it being personal and incarnational, um, I want you to know that I can see that working out in us. And I don't know if you know that or not, or if you, um, you know, if it was intentional, or I don't know. But I very much learned from you. You know, certainly in terms of uh, knowing the Old Testament and how to think about the Old Testament. But I think, more, I guess maybe more importantly was, um, I think I learned from you in how to relate to students and how to uh, be gracious and critical at the same time. And those are hard things to bring together. I guess it's sort of an Exodus 34 thing, isn't it? Um, um, so today we're going to uh, talk a little bit about uh, the craft of writing, and then about halfway through we're going to shift, and Amy Whitfield's going to help us out, and we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, I'll say one of Dr. House's favorite authors, I, I don't know if that's the right way to say that or not, but we're going to talk about Wendell Berry a little bit, and, uh, but first I wanted to just uh, begin with writing. Dr. House, you've written a lot of books. Uh, the first book that I was introduced to you by was your book on literary criticism. 
And that was the book that helped me to first contact you to see about doctoral studies, was, was that book. Um, but you've written monographs, you've written collections of, uh, you've edited you know, collections of essays, other works, you've written commentaries. Um, and I guess my first question to you is when you are looking at a new project, um, what, are the, what are the habits that you have to have instilled in you to see through a writing project from beginning to end? What, what are the habits of the writer that, that can see through a long-term project? Yeah, the habits of a writer is where I'll start in a moment. I, I want to thank the library staff for the significant work you do. Thanks for doing this. Um, I, it's an ancient, honorable, helpful craft. And I know it's like a lot of things under fire here and there. Uh, but I think a library is what Wallace Stegner said. You know, it's really, it's a, it's a commitment and a belief in the ongoing sharing of wisdom and culture. So it's very, thank you for doing it. Um, my daughter has a degree in library science and technology, so I, I suffered some of your things from time to time in the past. I must say hello to Stephen Jones again. I greet him outside. Stephen uh, is from Grant County, Indiana. The Argyles, is that right? The Madison Grant Argyles, great story behind that. His dad's told me many times. His dad was a colleague of mine at Taylor University, a longtime friend, um, pastor of a rural church for about 40 years while he's teaching at Taylor. Um, really, we ought to have more guys uh, like Tom come and speak here because really, uh, what, what great parents. They love their son and think highly of him in his absence, so I have to say that. I was lucky in that uh, I had a serious high school English teacher who had us read challenging literature, Camus and Sartre and stuff like that, uh, 17-year-old Southwest Missourians, and he would have us write about it. It must have been dreadful to read it. It must have been horrible. Uh, but he would, he would read it and mark it and would be careful with us. Um, and then I went to college. And I had taken a national test, and I, I tested out of several hours of college. But the English department, which was led by Tom Paget, would not allow you to have those hours. You had to prove the hours. And so I took a Paget's writing class, added the uh, English major to my biblical studies major, and then later did a master's in English. So I, I was lucky at that. I was lucky enough to teach freshman composition, if you can call that luck. They did pay me to do it. I uh, was lucky enough to have, have taught international students in some of those settings. So that that, um, that had its own interest. So basically, at, at, at some point, I, want, I knew I wanted to write. And Wendell Berry said at one point he wanted to become a poet, but that's way too broad. In other words, what do you want to be a writer? Well, I'd like to be published. Well, everybody wants to be published, and these days anybody can be. So... Um, is that what you want to do? Uh, well, I realized it was a way to extend the teaching ministry I had. It's one thing. To hold a conversation with other people writing and trying to do scholarship in that area. To contribute to that conversation. 
It's a chance to find something different or new that is true that you'd like to say. You've seen something or heard something that um, maybe has not been fleshed out and seen and heard so much before. You want to help a friend? <laughs> then there are certain things that you do. Um, so there, there are different reasons. But when I wanted to be a writer, I got serious about the craft. I had been an athlete. I knew a basketball player in particular and a race walker, which has its own rule, one of the few sports that have rules to your movement. So I thought you have to be disciplined, that sort of thing. So I stopped writing contractions sometime in the 1970s, maybe the 80s. So you might have noticed, I mean, you probably didn't, but if you get an email from me, you won't find any contractions. Why is that? Well, you don't write them if you're writing for publication. At least we didn't. Starting to come in a little bit more. Um, I try to write something. May not do it today, but I try to write something every single day. So, and I take seriously the form. So I don't. I don't. Um, if you get an email from me, it's 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 likely to have more than one paragraph. I try to think about even a short thing how you would shape it. That th you got to think like a writer. In other words, you start you start practicing the habits that make this happen. Runners can't eat certain things; they have to train certain ways, and so forth. So, I put on a set of things that make me think like a writer. Um, I I don't text. Uh, I don't do Facebook in part because I'm a private person, and the people you Google my name or you use some other search you'll find me I, people have found me so I, I don't I don't need to be found by everyone but mainly I don't think I can say much in 140 characters and I'm not asked to do that much so maybe in the future we'll have extraordinary persons and literature from that I don't know um, I've got enough to do. So I, I don't do that. So again, I'm going to take writing seriously. I I try very hard to never write an incomplete sentence. Um, if I'm going to use passive voice, there's got to be a reason for it, and, and so forth. I, I'm trying to keep the rules of writing when I write, and then I want to write something every day to practice my craft. And I want to read what I feel like cross-training good, good writers German commentators in translation, not good, not good models. You've read them, haven't you? You know, it's. I'm trying to say. I was trying to sound like von Rod translated by, um, you know, is write good, clear English prose. If you can write a five-paragraph essay that's clear and solid, you can write a book. Um, understand what you're trying to do with words. Be careful. Same thing when you preach. The are these good words? Is this an effective speech? Will you stand by them? Have you told and seen the truth? So start thinking like a writer. Practice the habits that go along with it. Take advice from people who actually mark your paper. I was very discouraged about a year ago about I, I make lots of marks on paper and I I mean if. If the professor writing on your page freaks you out, you wouldn't want me to grade it. So, but I'm actually in dialogue. But then you realize a lot of people are only looking for the end, B minus, 
So I started giving the comments back to doctoral students at one point where I didn't give them the grade. Drove, drove Mooney nuts. But at any rate, um, to look at, the, look at the marks. So I was about to quit doing that about a year ago. I get a letter, uh, an email from a student I had in 1994 who's now teaching her daughter to write in homeschool and thank me for all the marks that I put on the paper. She had pulled it out of the file and read it. Again, God's a funny person. So when someone gives you constructive criticism, not were you drunk when you wrote this, but here's a better way to say it, listen and take it on board. And uh, I still submit my stuff to other people. A friend of mine who is a, a Ben Mitchell, who's a provost at Union University, he's going to be speaking on something. He sent me a, a draft and asked me what I thought. So um, listen to people, take constructive criticism, learn the habits of writing if you want to be a writer. Um, I want to ask you a question about genre uh, when you are writing because like, like I mentioned before you have written different kinds of things and uh, so for instance your recent book on Bonhoeffer's seminary vision is very different it's a, well a different topic I suppose I don't know if it's a different genre per se but it's a different topic of course but um, specifically in terms of commentary what is it like writing a commentary and how is that different than writing a sort of just sustained, more of a sustained narrative. To write a commentary is, you'll you ask a question that you should write all, ask all the time. What's the audience? What's the target audience? And I've heard lots of writers criticized for writing what the editors wanted them to write and, this, and what the series called for instead of, and, and the reader said, oh, I didn't do this, didn't do that. They, they did what they were asking paid to do. So you might want to go ahead and read those series prefaces before you criticize some of these things and see what they're asked to do. I then think about what would be um, a normal reader, a good reader. So, for instance, New American Commentary, they said to me, uh, or even when I wrote Old Testament Survey, Trent Butler was my editor, maybe the best Old Testament scholar uh, Southern Babs really ever had uh, as far as tremendous guy tremendous editor tremendous scholar mm -hmm. he said I want you to think about people with assume no knowledge really an 18 year old or an 80 year old it wouldn't matter they're beginning students imagine that some of them I had in my class at Taylor University and that sort of thing don't dumb it down write to a real person uh, write he, he suggested I write shorter sentences and this was the aim. So I got, I got the audience. And I think, at least for a while, I think we had it right. That was going to do the New American Commentary. It's different. I was writing to eight, basically 18-year-old students and the kind of people I was meeting in church who didn't know the Old Testament. Hmm. Nothing wrong with their minds. They just, no experience. That was the survey. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and then the New American Commentary is supposed to be theological exegesis. We're still trying to figure out what that is 25 years later. But... Trent said to me, then, well, you better figure out a grid that you're going to work on. And so I, I said, okay, we're going to go here, 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 and here. So these are the sections. We're going to start with um, whatever historical details need to be known to help you understand literary material, theological, canonical, down and through the applications. This text is flowing like that. 
and I was thinking about pastors and students who in good faith would try to teach this teach this um, at the time I hadn't written commentary I probably would have signed on to do anything um, opportunity matters but I was thinking about that I was thinking about that reader that's those students uh, I wanted to write they told me how and it's very important I I'm still learning this, but I think I have learned it uh, working on this Isaiah commentary. I will never take another, I will never take another book contract that doesn't give a word limit. This was how many pages they would give me. So I then began to scope. It's like your dissertation. Here's how many pages you have. So I started, I started planning out the book. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about the people in First Second Kings if they were real people, mm-hmm. and to keep the unity of the thing going. But still, once I determined what I thought was the overall shape of the book, like I was trying to do that today imperfectly, but here's what I think Isaiah is doing. This is the way he's doing it. These are the people in it. This is the way the images that are going. And this is how we, we keep reading to if you wanted to read it from first to last, you could. Mm-hmm. Um, so a commentary, you're thinking about a different kind of reader than if it's a survey. If the, uh, if the editor and the publisher can't tell you who they got in mind, then I, I would do it if I hadn't published before, and this helped this helped my gig. But I, I would I'd be I'd pick I'd have to pick somebody and say it in the in the okay. preface. Yeah, who the audience is. Yeah, right. Yeah, because we want the masses to buy this. What everybody wants. Um, so there's that. The word biblical commentary. Uh, my my. PhD supervisor John Watts added to that. Here was already the format. So then my question is, what's my own personal contribution to this? What what do I bring to this particular task that is unique and understandable? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Bonhoeffer um, was the f- first book I had written in a long time that I didn't already have a contract for. It's a it's a great blessing to have a contract, but I there was a part of me that wanted to feel like a writer again, if I could okay. put it that way. So I, I Bonhoeffer had thirty five years of impact on me. I've been reading this stuff. A lot of things came together. I wrote it without a contract. Uh, went to publishers with it. Learned to risk rejection again, which was rejected by two people. Uh, didn't fit their program, uh, and so forth. But I wanted to write from the heart about something that hadn't been covered the last half of his seminary teaching years. And I worried, though, that I didn't know enough history. Mm-hmm. Um, I was greatly relieved when Victoria Barnett, who's you know the American editor of the series, told me she thought I'd done good work. Good. Good. So it was a great relief, but that was a risk to me, but it's one I wanted to take. Because, again, I, wanted, I felt like a writer again. Yeah. And not someone who was plotting out mm. books that I was asked to do or, okay. or something. But the plotting out is good work. And I was, I'm incredibly blessed to say, you know, act, well, you know never write with a, with a contract. What are you, nuts? If you can get a contract, <laughs> <laughs> write the book. But it was I, different. I, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then we're going to kind of segue into another time here where um, uh, Amy Whitfield's going to come up and sort of lead our second half, and then... We'll try to leave about 15 or 20 minutes at the end for other questions. Um, 
and I hope I have this information right. I didn't check this with you beforehand, but I remember a comment that you made one day when I was in your office and um, at, at Southern Seminary. And um, I was asking you about writing, and I think I was just working under the assumption that I was working at my computer. I was working a certain way, and, and, I, and I asked you something about how you, you know, the writing process. And I remember you, I still remember you doing your, your, you were doing your pen in the air. And I said, what do you mean? And you said, I, I write everything longhand. I may be paraphrasing. And you could point down on your shelf, if I remember correctly, there's, the, there's my Old Testament theology, you know, and it was a series of notebooks. There's my King's commentary, and it was a series of notebooks. I, I hope I'm remembering this right. Um, what to you, uh, and I haven't asked this of you before, so I'm curious to hear, and it may just be a very silly answer, I don't know. Is it important to you that you're writing by hand? What, what do you gain in that experience, or what happens to your writing that's different than if you were writing at a computer? That's interesting you ask, because I've, I've been writing on a computer for quite a long time, and then recently I've gone back to writing by hand. Um, first of all, I learned to write by hand. Uh, I never learned to type, really. Um, I have learned to type the way a lot of you have. I mean, to me, typing is this real thing, you know, where you got the system down. Um, not, where is it? You know, I'll hit it. Uh, but when I first learned to use a computer, my, my goal was to be able simply to, to type more words a minute than I could write. Mm -hmm. But I find these days I get too sloppy and think I can revise. Yeah. Um, I get these wordy answers. You ought to see how wordy I get on the computer. Slows me down. I have to invest in each page. I have to ask myself if I really want to say that. Do I want to... I can't go back and fix all this without an effort. Uh, my sentences start coming into line. Uh, it becomes more of a physical act and not just a... It's going to always be a mental act, mm -hmm. but... Um, I went to one of, the, I think, the last place in the United States where they make the whole book from typeset to, to gluing it together and putting the type on it. And there, there, there is something about slowing down having the physical process involved. If your hand hurts, you've probably been writing too hard or too long, and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, change, it, it changes my style to a simpler, um, more readable, more judicious, uh -huh. if I could put it that way. Um, for years I wrote, someone else typed it, I edited the, proof, the pages, and we were just about done. Yeah. So... I notice more younger people now carrying around, you know, the moleskin books and the things and writing things down. I, you might better ask them because they're coming from the other side. Why would I give up, you know? Right. But writing's a physical act, I think. Yeah. I'm glad I don't have to mix the ink, but. I, I, I think that's what I've discovered, and I, so I was talking to someone else about this. The, the best things that I write are done by hand, and the fastest things I write, I suppose, are done on the computer. Yeah. Or uh, there's maybe other ways to say that, but there there's something about the physical act, and it, and I think it's the technology of having just that single point, and it's it's your your sort of your men my mental focus has been reduced to one point, yeah. rather than ten fingers, 
and a separate keyboard and then a separate yet printer somewhere else. And, and it's bringing that whole process into just one, one point. And, and, and time and space. Yeah, and see, since I switched, now, now back, I'm, I'm right on a desk, and I'm looking outside at our property. I don't have much property, but I really enjoy it out there, what I see. When I'm on the screen, what I see is the screen. So when I look down, I see a keyboard. When I look up, I see a screen. Now when I look, and I know you can put a wind, you, you, can, you can sit in a different spot, but just for me personally, it's, also, it's changed my horizon and the refreshment I get riding. With this, I'm gonna turn this over to Amy. All right, so we'll make a little bit of a transition. You've been talking about you as a writer, so now we're talking about another writer having impact on you. How, uh, this will help frame where we go. How many of you are readers of Wendell Berry? Okay, so we have a few. Um, so maybe you can give a little bit of an introduction to him, sort of the impact, why we would pick one one writer to really talk about. Yeah, and I, I, I will strive to be briefer. Uh, students often say, I have a short, I have a brief question. I'm always fearful I don't have a brief answer. Um, Wendell Berry was born in 1934 in Kentucky. He's still alive, still writing and working. Uh, he was born in a rural context. Um, as he said, uh, thought he would be educated to leave there and inhabit a career, not a place. Mm -hmm. uh, with the attempt to be famous, probably in an academic setting that would cause you to move every two or three years. Um, 1964, he's offered a teaching job at the University of Kentucky, and he made the firm decision to leave New York City, where he's teaching at Columbia, to go to the University of Kentucky um, to live in a place. And he has taught off and on, now off, uh, and written in his home place of very few American authors write essays, fiction, and poetry. It's a, it's a small group, uh, but he does that. And by now, the body of work is, is extensive. He's best known for arguing that American industrial thought is not inevitable nor good, necessarily, and that we should consider uh, places and people and words more carefully. I started reading him sometime in the late 1980s, I think, because uh, I was a rural person, he was a rural writer, mm -hmm. and have come slowly to appreciate more and more. Uh, I was served as president of the Evangelical Theological Society. I was given a job of speaking at the national meeting in which we had creation care as a theme. And I started doing, I started examining what my life had been in its reflection of rural people. I read The Unsettling of America, and then I understood nearly everything that happened to us. And I was so angry at what had happened through our culture. I was so angry at my people's part in, in, in participating in what had happened to us uh, that I had to pick something else but to, to speak about but it's been an, it's been an education all the way along. Um, so you talk about the, as he's talked about sort of the development of things. One of the things he deals with a lot is technology, um, and I'm going to show my hand here a little bit. So uh, I I read him. I track with him talking about sort of the damage that that has done to community. Um, I have a 12 year old who asks me every day about some other social media. 
uh, tool that she wants to use. And I get to always say, well, no one's allowed to do that till they're 13. So that's kind of my thing. Next year, I don't know what my answer will start to be uh, because I want to keep that from sort of taking over her world, our world. At the same time, I work in communications here and social media is a huge thing for us, we know. Um, so in some ways, a lot of people here you know, can barely remember a time when it wasn't like it is. The places they're going to go and the people they're going to minister to are going to be in this. Um, how, how do we find the balance and how do you take what he's bringing up about community and, but actually go into a real context where we can't change everything now? Yeah, the, I think the most fundamental question he would ask is, um, is this a tool you're using for a good end or are you the tool now? Does it own you? Mm-hmm. I know tool now is coming to mean something else these days. But uh, I was asked to contribute to, a, vol- or to, a, to a, a journal and that was what they had on the front. The, the, uh, the phone was telling the, the owner of the phone, you're my tool, I'm not your tool. You also, she should say, am I, am I using this to relate to other people? Mm-hmm. I think it's the most fundamental question. Who I relate to personally, because two things. One, if a student goes out today to minister to a church, they need to remember, I'm the young end of the baby boom. Not everybody is spending all the time on this. You're going to have lots of parishioners who are people too. They're just old. They are, by the way, old people are the main buyers of ebooks. A lot easier to carry. You can make them big for your eyes, all sorts of things. Very interesting. What we find. So it's one thing for me to say I love a telephone because I can keep in contact with my wife today, uh, or I could keep in contact with a friend. Um, but having lived a long time, do I need a do I need a cell phone? Uh, I only feel bad for the people picking me up at the airport. <laughs> Having been in the Soviet Union back and not found the people on the other end that I was expecting, I I pretty well fear I can do this without a cell phone. Maybe, um, maybe. So that, that's one thing I can say. It's one thing if I if I carry this thing because uh, I love telephone because I can talk to my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, long time. Um, I can get email from friends in Australia and Africa in the same day. But that's a tool of our relationship. It doesn't replace it. And I think, so on the one end, you got people who are used to relating face-to-face and using uh, technological devices to help aid that. And then you also have, by, the first studies of Generation Z are very interesting. That'd be the ones in high school and early college now. That they're coming to say there's no big deal to some of these things, how to relate to people so it's another way to say, how can I be different than my older brother? Well, I'm, not on, I'm, I'm not on all that stuff. I, I go see my friends. I'm a rebel. Um, so I don't know what the next year, I, I don't know that everybody will be doing. Everything, yeah. So, but I do know this, they will, not, they will expect you not to Skype in when, they're, when their wife dies and you got the funeral. Uh, they're going to expect you there will always be this human expectation and 
I think it's very, very important for us to remember it's part of how we're created. So does the tool, and frankly, what's it cost? Um, is any cost bearable simply because we could think to buy it? So, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Barry now, he, he still has not bought a computer, famous 1987 uh, essay wrote. But he, he now knows that whatever he writes is going to be fed into a computer and printed out. Um, he knows that some of the people who do his correspondence use that. Um, we're part of a technological culture. Some of it's part of the second fall of the human race, he says. He, there's part of it. We're contributing to the coal company right about now with these lights on and stuff. Um, that bothers him, but it's part of it. So what do we do? We try to manage ourselves. And I guess as a Christian, I would also ask a third question. If self-control continues to be a gift of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean for technology? What does it mean for mm -hmm. anything? You know, it's yeah. still part of it. Yeah. So you said you started reading him because you're a rural person. Um, I, I read him because um, I grew up on my grandfather's tobacco farm. He died when I was young. Um, before he died, he had to, uh, to sell off a lot of the pieces of, of land to take care of my grandmother. And uh, I have... One cousin, all the grandchildren have gone off doing different careers. I have one cousin who is systematically trying to buy everything back that he possibly can um, and farm it. And when I read Wendell Berry, I feel like I'm talking to my grandfather again. Um, but not everyone's from that background, and not everyone's headed to that background. So we've had this sort of new uh, move back to the urban centers. And one of the things we see around here, and we talk about around here, is urban church planting. We have a lot of students who are headed back to the cities. And one of the things that's said all the time is the cities are the cultural centers. They're kind of the, the thing that trickles down to the rest of society. So why should someone who is um, urban read Wendell Berry? What does that have to, to contribute to, to what they're doing? Yeah, first of all, I think um, I've been rereading Barry's book on William Carlos Williams, and William Carlos Williams was an urban poet that Barry respected greatly. He's a Barry is a poet of place, not a poet of only rural places. So what he respected about William Carlos Williams is that he spent decades of his life in this urban place, knowing the people there, serving the people there, investing in their lives cross-generationally, and that and that sort of thing. So I think that's what he values. Do you come to make a difference and to make this home and to make it better while you're there, or did you come to excavate it and go on? Um, so I, I think it's, it's beyond farming. It's beyond the critique of get big or get out until there's nobody left in the country. And it is, it is startling, I have to say, Stephen, to, to go back to Grant County or even the environs uh, Blackford County, where I used to live, and to see how the emptying of the land has accelerated since I lived there 20 years ago. Death of whole towns and cultures and all sorts of things, and so that does matter. But beyond that, Barry, I think, would say, where are you investing where you are? How are you doing that? Are you paying attention to the people, the places? Um as for the urban being the, uh, these are the influencers, so that's where we need to go. 
I love his book, The Way of Ignorance, and uh, Life is a Miracle. Let me tell you what you don't know. You don't know whether you're going to influence the influencers, and you sure don't know if that's where the influence is going to come from. Why do you not know that? Because you are not omniscient. Um, So, if you only go where you think they're going to influence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, what do you say to a person who serves in a, what do you you say to the faithful people serving a rural church or or a good small town church or what? They're losers? We're going to trump them? Uh, Hey, um, God called them and sent them and gifted them and put them there. That's where they belong. So, you know, I, I have a hard time thinking we know all that we think we know or that we've influenced all we think we've influenced. Mm-hmm. Not only that, if we influence culture, I think Barry would say, you influence local culture. Because culture is an abstract concept that doesn't really work. New York City, where my friend Greg Thornberry is president of a college, he doesn't talk about New York. He talks about Manhattan and his part of Manhattan. Peggy Noonan, who's a New Yorker, through it, she talks about where she's from. So your local culture is what you can impact the rest of it. Better walk the way of ignorance and mystery. We'll see what happens. All right, I have two more questions, and then we'll open, open it up. One, um, we talk a lot about Great Commission here, which everybody does, but... Um, that's been a big thing. We use the word go everywhere. And uh, a lot of times when we're talking so much about where we're headed and going out, it has this very transient feeling. Like I'm just just headed down this path. Um, but a theme all the way throughout, particularly in fiction uh, from Barry, is this sense of place and uh, this understanding of the importance of place. So how, when we're talking about going to the ends of the earth or going across the street or wherever how how do what does place have connection the rootedness of the place where you've come connecting with the place where you're going that that type of concept yeah it's 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 inevitable the way our culture set up the way education set up and that sort of thing that there will be two and three and four year stints in your life um but do you actually unpack your stuff care about the people who live here and who will live here invest in their lives and learning from them and care about this local place for as long as you're here it's really a matter of concentration isn't it I'm going to be here I want to invest here Uh, I was proud of my daughter when she immigrated to England because I think she learned the lesson she didn't go and stay in an American only with talk with Americans, stay with American group, do anything else. She started meeting English people, British people. She got invested in the local church, in the local area. This is how I became the sponsor of a legal alien eventually, her husband. But at the end of the day, she was trying to invest where she was, the way she had in Grant County and Blackford County when she was growing up, and try to make a difference. And she's made long-term friends from that investment locally Um, so at the very least invest in one another so you can know each other long term but also do something about investing crescent hill if you're in louisville or whatever whatever you call the town here so do you ever do anything besides 
with people like yourself. So you go to class here, you go to a church here that's all your people and people like you, and you've never spent a dollar or done a thing in the locals. Uh, I guess you keep remembering their people too. So invest is what I would say. Even if it's two, even if it's a short period of time, unpack the stuff and get in it. Okay. All right. I'm going to ask a double question to finish out, and then so. Um, first of all, there were people here who haven't read Barry, so where do they start? And then second, I'm going to throw this one at you. I didn't uh, mention this before, but you've mentioned Wallace Stegner a couple of times today, which has been, uh, I've been loving that. And uh, we're, we're focusing on Barry, but who are other authors that you would recommend in the same sort of vein? So where would you start with Barry, and then who else would you? If you want to start with Barry's fiction, I would start with um, A Place on Earth, which is a novel has a great scene for instance uh, lots of great scenes that are helpful pastorally that was some of what my paper was at ETS here but there's this one set part where a, where a young minister's trying to help a family who's lost a loved one in World War II and he's trying he really wants to help but he keeps talking in platitudes and, and, and the narrator says for this young man the word never became flesh <laughs> he couldn't quite get with the people and their hurt where they were so so that was helpful but that, that introduces you to all the major Barry characters and then there are other novels that go with um, if you're going to read his poetry and again his seminary community uh, his Sabbath poems which now are collected over a long period of time I actually brought with me and uh, thought I would bring it to this meeting and forgot Sabbath poems 2006 in which he really reflects on the land, family, and the future, in which he says things like he, he, he can't quite figure out what the resurrection will be like, the new heavens and the earth, but he makes this beautiful statement. Uh, I, I want to know my wife, see her young, and remember that I loved her when she was old. So you just start thinking about in the new heavens and the earth the implications of, of something like that. Or... Uh, 2013 Sabbaths are beautiful. He has this one poem about how we disintegrate into disincarnation before screens if we're not careful. But he's going to make you think about the faith. So I, the Sabbath poems are good that way. Lots of other good stuff he's written, but I'm just saying as an entry point. Essays, you'd probably be helpful as I would on that. Um, I, I love this one essay, if you go find it, Discipline and Hope, which says mm -hmm. the, the means... And the ends are interconnected, how we do things. So the how of education, the how of ministry, the how of parenting, the how of where, that, you can't just say, well, as long as we got a good end, you don't know what you're looking at then. Mm -hmm. So discipline and hope's awfully good. Standing by words mm -hmm. is a good book and essay for ministers and others who words are going to matter mm -hmm. i like what are people for what are That's people for is a great book and a great little essay it's a simple one mm -hmm. education for home defense is a good one um now any of barry's essays that are about his friends are very instructive so if he's writing about mari Tallinn or he's uh he's writing about some of these other authors he's he's talking about his friends and why they're important to him and it'll 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 bolster your interest in friendship on friendship, Wallace Stegner's crossing to safety ought to be required reading, probably for every human being, but certainly for every 
anybody who wants to be a friend and a minister. Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner. Mm-hmm. I hear they're going to make a movie, but I... <sighs> That, that book wrecked me. So. It's, it, it is exactly what I was trying to say when I wrote, when I wrote an essay on um, friendship and ministry. Exactly it. And it's true to life. To, he, he writes a lot of stuff that's directly from his life. And these are friends he had, crossing to safety. Um, I think is, is brilliant. He's, Stegner has a, a, a book of essays called Where the Bluebirds Where the, how's it go, the Big Rock anymore? Where the bluebird sings and the lemonade. Anyway, it's taken from the song Big Rock Candy Mountain. But it's got, you librarians, he's got this great essay at the dedication of the University of Utah a Library in 1969 or 70. It's a, it's a marvelous piece. Um, he has a friend named, G, uh, uh, Barry has a friend named Gene Logsdon, L-O-G-S-D-O-N. Gotten to know Gene a little bit. Um, he was a uh, training for to be a catholic priest and when you read when you read how gene came to confront the absurdities of religion and preparation for ministry and how he came to not believe it should help all of us who are who are educators to think theological educators to think about how it's going people but gene logs and also writes about how you grow things at home, how you grow, how you raise cattle and sheep, and he's got great memoirs. So Gene Logsdon, uh, he would love. I'll make sure he knows that. I recommend him to a bunch of seminarians. Gene takes some sort of perverse pleasure in knowing that, but um, it's been it's been interesting to get to know him.